0: Well, in American history, there is no feud more legendary than the conflict between the Hatfields of West Virginia and the McCoys of Kentucky. Their differences began during the Civil War when the Hatfields, who supported the Confederacy, made no secret of the deep disdain they felt for the McCoys' support of the Union. Some even suspected that the Hatfields killed one of the McCoys, uh, me, one of the McCoy men, because he had served in the Union Army. But the feud between these two families didn't seem to gain much steam until 1878, when the rightful ownership of a particular pig was called into question, and that uh, was contested sharply between the two families. And the dispute ended with the McCoys killing one of the Hatfields. From there, the conflict exploded into an all-out war between the two families, with both sides regularly participating in beatings and kidnappings and murders of the other family members. The feud reached its bloodiest peak in 1888 when a group of Hatfields attacked the McCoy cabin during the night in what became known as the New Year's Night Massacre. They opened fire on the cabin, killed two people, brutally beat a third, and then burned the cabin to the ground. Shortly afterwards, law enforcement had to get involved, and the governors of the two states deployed state militia to help get the situation under control. Following a manhunt, several of the Hatfields were arrested for their part in the massacre, and at least seven of them were given life sentences. After about a dozen years of bloody conflict, the two families finally called for a truce. This happened in uh, 1891, and the truce actually worked. It brought genuine peace and resolution between the two families. Amazingly, and despite their history of violence against each other, the descendants of the two families have regularly hosted friendly family reunions together. The most recent one was scheduled for September of 2020. And in probably what is the most bizarre twist of the whole story, in November of 1979, the two family appeared as rivals for a week-long best of five contest on the TV game show Family Feud. (laughs) It's the Hatfields and McCoys, possibly the most legendary feud in American history now Jewish history has had its share of legendary conflicts as well R- ranking near the top of that list has to be Israel's battle uh, kind of that ongoing battle with the Philistines made famous by David and Goliath and we would certainly include in that list is, uh, the conflict between the two sons of Abraham Isaac and Ishmael which, by the way, is the root of the Middle East conflict today. But there is another conflict. There is a third conflict, which many Jews would place at the very top of the list, and that is the feud between Israel and the Amalekites, which is the conflict behind the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. We're continuing on in our series on Esther this morning. I've titled this sermon, Mordecai and Haman, The Feud Reignited. And as you can see from your outline, I've divided our message or our passage into three parts uh, for the message. And so if you turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter two, for the sake of time, we're actually going to jump right into uh, the passage this morning. We're going to start by looking at chapter two, verses 19 to 23. Verses 19 to 23. And in these uh, five verses, Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate the king. Mordecai uncovers a plot to assassinate the king. Let's look at these verses together. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All of this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. So our passage opens with virgins being gathered or assembled for a second time. The event referred to in this phrase, the gathering of the virgins, we're not sure what that is. And interestingly, most commentaries skip over it altogether. Now, there are some authors who speculate that Xerxes may have rounded up another group of girls for his harem. But the fact is, we really don't know for sure. At least I have not found a satisfactory or definitive answer as to what is going on in the assembling of the virgins the second time. But we do find Mordecai sitting at the king's gate in this verse. Now, this doesn't mean that Mordecai was casually lounging poolside near a gate, leisurely passing the time and sipping on a soft drink. The reference here to the king's gate is to the main entrance to the upper city. This gate was actually excavated. That was hard to say. The gate was excavated in the 1970s and they found it to be a massive enclosed structure, more than 130 feet long and 90 feet wide. It had rooms on each side that could uh, be used to uh, house soldiers or to hold meetings. See, in the Middle East, the king's gate was equivalent to what we might call our modern law court. It was the place where important business was transacted, where important decisions were made. When the text says that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, it most likely means that he now held a position of authority in Persia, maybe even a position in the empire's judicial system. Verse 20 tells us that Esther continued to keep her nationality and her family connection to Mordecai secret, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. This is is a significant insight into the heart of Esther, because in Jewish culture, fathers and guardians held extensive authority and influence over their children. But that power and influence and sway significantly reduced when a daughter got married, because then her husband um, assumed legal responsibility for her. So in this verse, the author is drawing our attention to the respect that Esther continues to show Mordecai and to the consideration that she continues to give to his advice, even though she's no longer obligated to do so. The author wants us to see Esther's character as admirable, as commendable. Now, in verse 21, there's two men, Big Thana and Teresh. And these guys find their 15 minutes of fame as they conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. These two, it says these two men guarded the doorway. That mean, it probably means that they protected the king's private quarters. And for reasons that we're not told, they became angry, really angry, angry enough to kill him. I mean, maybe they were Vashti supporters, or maybe they were Esther's opponents, or maybe they just got tired of the king uh, gathering the most beautiful women in the kingdom and keeping them in his harem for himself. We're never told. But during the time that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, God providentially allowed Mordecai to discover the plot to assassinate Xerxes. One historian named Xenophon reports that sometimes king's officials resided at the king's gate. And if that's true, it might mean that Mordecai overheard these men kind of nursing their anger and formulating their plans during the middle of the night or maybe early some morning when they thought everybody else was asleep. When Mordecai found out, it says that he told Queen Esther, who then reported it to the king, And she gave credit to Mordecai. She didn't want to disclose her family connection yet. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, two things happened. First, the two conspirators were executed. The two officials, the text says, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. Now, the Hebrew word there for gallows literally means a wooden object. And so it actually more closely implies that the men were probably impaled which was actually a more frequent form of Persian execution but that's an image we don't need to linger on for very long. The second thing that happened was that the event was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. You know interestingly Persian kings were notorious for very generously rewarding noble and heroic deeds, much like what Mordecai had done. But in this case, for reasons we don't know yet, this didn't happen. The event was written down for posterity, but Mordecai received no recognition, no reward. There was no party, no parade, no promotion Has that ever happened to you? Maybe you put in the time, you did the work, you stayed late to meet the deadlines. Maybe it was your suggestion or your idea that took the project or the event to a whole new level. Maybe it was your Herculean efforts behind the scenes that made the events on center stage run so smoothly. But at the end of the day, for whatever reason, your contribution received no recognition, no applause. If you have ever experienced that, you probably read verse 23 with a stronger feeling of irritation and exasperation than many other people do. But for all of us who recognize God's providence, for those of us who are convinced of God's sovereignty, we must remember this, that when the good we do, When the good we do is overlooked by man, we trust that God has a better plan. When when the good we do is overlooked by people around us and they don't seem to notice, we trust that God has something else in mind. God may have a different idea, a better idea for giving us a reward or some kind of recognition. And we need to trust him in that. We need to remember that he knows all things, he sees all options, and he knows every potential outcome of every option in front of him, which means that we can stay at peace and be at rest even when we feel overlooked because we know that God will do what's best for us and he'll do it when the time is right. And additionally, additionally, As followers of Christ, we we choose to do what's right because it's the right thing to do, not because we hope to get recognized, right? Whether or not we are rewarded really is immaterial. With the Holy Spirit's help, we need to do our best to think and speak and act in a way that brings glory to God, not to ourselves. That's really our ultimate goal. So if you find yourself being overlooked, be at peace and trust that God has a better plan. Now, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, a contest of wills erupts between Mordecai and a man named Haman. And in this conflict, a centuries-old feud is reignited. And it happens when Mordecai defies the command to honor Haman. Mordecai defies the command to honor Haman. Let's look at these verses together. It says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the king's officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? And day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. We'll pause there. So, verse one opens with the promotion of a man named Haman. And because this promotion immediately follows Mordecai's discovery of and thwarting of the assassination attempt on King Xerxes, many people connect those two. And they suppose that Haman was wrongfully credited and wrongly promoted. Uh, for saving the king. And, and people suggest that this is why Mordecai refused to show him honor. But I disagree. I completely disagree. And I'll tell you why. The promotion elevated Haman to a seat of honor higher than, all, higher than that of all the other nobles. You see that in verse 1? This is arguably the highest position in the kingdom next to the king and queen. And along with this promotion, the king commanded that in Haman's presence, people must kneel down and pay honor to Haman. And verse two says that all the royal officials at the king's gate did exactly that. They did as the king commanded. But one man, one man remained standing. Mordecai defied the king's command and refused to bow down. And Mordecai was not being stubborn were proud and he was not protesting an unfair promotion his refusal get this his refusal was born out of conviction and principle his refusal was born out of conviction and principle let me tell you what I mean when the king commanded people to kneel and pay honor the Hebrew word for honor suggests an act of worship And to a Torah-observant Jew, bowing down in worship to any person or thing on this earth was a dreadful act of idolatry. It went against the deepest convictions of their faith. It violated the first and second commandments. You have to remember, idolatry is one of the main reasons the Jews were in exile to begin with. Mordecai's ancestors had bowed down when they shouldn't have, and it led them into captivity. So do you see, Mordecai was not going to bow down and worship somebody, you know, another man. For Mordecai, this was a matter of conviction and principle. In verses 3 and 4, the king's officials, they asked Mordecai why he disobeyed the king's command. Truth is, they'd probably never seen anything quite that bold because most people would never defy the king's command. And as a result, he became kind of the focus of their curiosity. And so day after day, they would ask him why he disobeyed the king's command. And we don't know how long this inquiry continued, but I get the impression that it went on for quite some time. And this is speculation on my part, but I'm telling you that ahead of time. But here's what I think happened over time. I think their curiosity turned into badgering. And I think their badgering eventually turned into interrogation. And what started out as encouragement to Mordecai, come on, Mordecai, just bow down and keep yourself out of trouble. I think that eventually morphed into the pressure to compromise. Come on, Mordecai. Just bow down. What makes you better than the rest of us? That's what I think happened. But the text says that Mordecai refused to comply, explaining that he was a Jew and bowing down before another man was something he simply could not do. On and on and on this went. But eventually, the king's officials went to Haman. They told him about Mordecai's refusal to bow down and the reason that he gave was that he was a Jew and they simply wanted to know, are you going to tolerate this? Are you going to put up with this? And for whatever reason, up to this point, Haman had never noticed that Mordecai wouldn't bow down. Everybody else bowed down and Mordecai had stayed standing up. But for some reason, Haman didn't notice. How had he not seen such brazen defiance? I think he asked himself. But you could count on one thing. Now that Haman knew, he was going to be looking and watching for Haman or for Mordecai. And sure enough, in verse 5, when Haman passed by, he saw that Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honor. And he was enraged. Let me break into the story for just a moment and remind us all of something. And that is this, your wholehearted devotion to the Lord will often stir up somebody else's anger. Your wholehearted devotion to the Lord will often stir up somebody else's anger. Friends, half-hearted commitment doesn't really bother people all that much. If you're willing to compromise your values and convictions, it only makes it other people easier for other people to accept you as one of the guys or one of the gals. But, but, wholehearted, uncompromising devotion, there will always be somebody who resents that. You'll find it at work, in school, in your neighborhood. You'll even find it in the church. And friends, I wish that wasn't true, but it is. You'll find this even in the church. Your wholehearted devotion cuts through mediocrity and it exposes compromise and it puts pressure on people around you who enjoy and benefit from living in the gray areas. You know what I mean? So, so whenever, your, whenever your wholehearted devotion to the Lord leads you to take a stand and, and stand for something or refuse to bow down for something, just be ready, just be ready. Because someone else's anger will get stirred up when you do it. Okay, let's go back to Haman. Look at verse 6. It says that when he, learned, when he learned who Mordecai's people were, the idea of killing only Mordecai despised him. This man was infuriated. Rage and hatred boiled up inside him like a cauldron. Nothing short of exterminating the entire Jewish race would satisfy his fury. I am going to wipe them out, he said, every last one. And given his extreme reaction, we're led to ask, what in the world is going on here, right? I mean, how does one man not bowing down stir up a genocidal fury inside of Haman? What is going on? And the answer to that is found further back in Israel's history, all the way back around the Exodus. Now, I'm going to keep this brief and simple for you, but stay with me through this little bit of history, because if we understand this, it will help us to make sense of the entire central conflict in the book of Esther. So hang with me, okay? Okay? Okay. All right. So nearly a thousand years earlier, Moses was leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt, In the Exodus, and almost immediately another nation called the Amalekites came and fought against them. And if you remember the story, Joshua led the people into battle, but Moses positioned himself on top of a hill. And with the staff of God in his hand, he raised his hands to God. And as he did, Israel prevailed in battle over the Amalekites. But if he lowered his hands because they got tired and heavy, then the tide would begin to turn in favor of the Amalekites. So Moses got a rock. He sat down on that rock. And with his arms in the air... And a man standing on each side of him to help him hold his arms up, he held the staff of God above him. And in doing so, Joshua and the Israelites prevailed over Amalek. And at the end of the battle, at the end of that battle, God declared that he was going to utterly blot the memory of Amalek from under heaven. I am going to blot their memory out Forever. You can read that story in Exodus chapter 17. But now, fast forward about 400 years to 1 Samuel 15. And King Saul is now ruling over the nation of Israel. Remember, he was their first king. And through the prophet Samuel, God announces that the time for Amalek's judgment has arrived. God is going to use King Saul and the Israelite army to completely destroy the Amalekites. King Saul is instructed to attack and utterly destroy, leave no person or animal alive, not one. So Saul gathered 210,000 soldiers and he attacked Amalek. And at the end of the day, I should say, but at the end of the day, Saul disobeyed the Lord. Saul thought he had a better idea. Not only did he choose to keep the best of the livestock alive, and again, he rationalized by saying, well, I'm going to offer to sacrifices to the Lord, right? Right? But and So not only did he keep the best livestock alive, but he spared the life of the king of Amalek. And some suggested that when he spared the king, he also spared the royal family. And the name of that king was Agag. Then Samuel arrived... On the scene, he confronted Saul and said to him that because of his disobedience, he had forfeited his kingdom. God was now going to tear away the kingdom from him and give it to another person who would be king, who would obey the Lord. And then Samuel took a sword and he went and killed Agag himself like Saul was supposed to do. Now, fast forward again to Esther chapter 3, where we are today. From Mordecai's perspective, God himself had declared Agag an enemy. And that included all of his descendants. But now, Haman, the Agagite, a descendant, a direct descendant of Agag, has been promoted to a position of power in the Persian Empire. And Mordecai has been ordered to bow down to him. And that is something he just cannot do just as a side note, friends, never support what the Lord is against. Never support what the Lord is against. Never promote what God prohibits, never accept what God rejects, and never love what God hates. Personally, I believe this was the core motivation behind Mordecai's refusal to bow down you see the connection? King Saul compromised with Agag and lost his kingdom because of it. Mordecai was not about to make the same mistake. He would not bow down or make any compromise with an an enemy of the Lord. And neither should we, friends. Neither should we. Now, from Haman's perspective, if we Turn this around. From Haman's perspective, standing in front of him is a man who refuses to show him the honor he believes he deserves. And this man is a Jew. A Jew. Haman thinks to himself, that disgusting, wretched people that tried to exterminate my people. But oh, how the tables have turned. Right? Right? The tables have turned. And now seizing this opportunity, Haman is going to do to the Jews what they attempted and failed to do to his people so many years back. He is going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And in this final section of our passage today, Haman conceives a plot to exterminate the Jews. He conceives a plot to exterminate the Jews. Look at verse 7. It says, in the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the purr, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. So we notice right away that we're in the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, which means that at this point, Esther has been queen for five years. It is the first month of the Jewish calendar, the month of Nisan, and Haman's staff, the people that work for him, they are casting the purr, what what the Jews call casting lots. It might be similar to us in the rolling of dice. might be a similar analogy. And his people are trying to a select a day and a month for the extermination. In the process of casting the purr, Haman believed that the gods of Persia would help him to select a day that was favorable to attack. They would help him select a day that carried no blessing for the Jews and no omens for the Persians. And the lot fell on the twelfth month. And Haman made a beeline for the king. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. See, the Persians were pretty relaxed with countries that they captured. And they regularly allowed their subjects to follow their own customs and their own laws, so long as it didn't disturb the peace of the empire. And the Jews did have some unique customs, but these presented no danger to the king or to his kingdom. The accusation that they did not obey the king's laws probably comes from the fact that Mordecai refused to bow down. It was hardly grounds for extermination. And given that the king is alive because of Mordecai's discovery of an assassination plot, it really is in the best interest of the king to tolerate them. But, but, as you know, when a person has a private agenda, facts can be annoying and inconvenient, right? Facts just get in the way. So Haman is cloaking his request in deception. He's not telling the king the whole story. He doesn't identify who the ethnic people are, what the ethnic group is. He doesn't acknowledge that there's a long-standing family feud that's motivating his request. He doesn't admit that he has his own prejudice against his people. Haman just wants a decree to be issued. That's what he wants. I just want the decree. And so he sweetens the deal by offering to put 10,000 talents of silver into the king's treasury. That, friends, is a huge sum of money. Huge. Some Bible scholars suggest that it is equivalent to half or two-thirds of the annual revenue of the entire kingdom. In today's silver market, that amount is equivalent to a little more than $325 million. There were probably two or three places that Haman could gather that money from. I believe that he planned to pay that money using the plunder that would be gathered after the genocide. That's my guess. Verses 10 and 11 say this. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and he gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Xerxes gave his signet ring to Haman and told him to do whatever he wanted. No investigation held, no questions asked like, who are these people or what effect would their extermination have on my kingdom and what about his duty to you know as he ruled over people proverbs 18:13 says he who answers a matter before he hears it it is folly and shame to him and that's exactly what happened here the king's signet ring was his signature, and with it, Haman was given a blank check. Do whatever you want to do. Verses 12 through 14 says, Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jews. Young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. See, the royal secretaries were summoned and Haman's decree was translated into every language in the kingdom. Using the king's name and his signet ring, Haman ordered that every Jew in every province, young and old, women and children, were to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Can you feel the vindictiveness in how he piled up those words? He wanted them destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And it was scheduled to occur on the 13th day of the 12th month, the day selected by the casting of the purr. Haman gave the Jews 11 months to sit and be tormented, about their approaching doom. And notice also that the royal secretaries were gathered to write and translate the decree on the 13th of Nisan. I don't think that was an accident. I think Haman planned it, and I think he savored the diabolical irony of it. Because Jewish Passover was the next day, the 14th of Nisan. Which means that as the Jews joyfully prepared to celebrate their deliverance from Egypt, Haman was joyfully preparing for their destruction. He is a wicked man. In verse 15... Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the city of Citadel and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. The couriers have been sent and even the city of Susa has been put on notice. Phase one is done. And Haman feels good about it. He's feeling smug and confident and even a little bit invincible. And he sat down with the king to have a drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. The people of Susa didn't share Haman's hatred or his prejudice, and they certainly didn't understand what would have caused the king to issue such a harsh decree. We're going to learn more about that next week. But before we close the message today, let me offer you one more idea. It's an idea about how this passage could apply to us. And I would say it this way. Our hearts are susceptible to the same sins as Haman's heart. So we must regularly uh, invite the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. Our hearts are susceptible to the same sins as Haman's heart. So we must regularly invite the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. It's true, friends. If we take a careful and honest look inside of us, we will find that the sins in the heart of Haman are in our hearts as well. We see it when we hold grudges against each other. We see it when we look down on certain people or maybe on certain people groups. We catch glimpses of it when we scoff at the advancement of other people, wondering why we haven't been moved ahead ourselves. We see it when we entertain thoughts of getting even with somebody who has hurt us or disappointed us, a colleague maybe, or a boss, a church leader, or an ex-spouse. Friends, if we don't acknowledge And ask the Holy Spirit to uproot those sins from our hearts. They will sink down roots inside and grow into our hearts. And it will happen slowly and almost imperceptibly until one day we are entertaining thoughts and making plans and saying things that ought to shock and alarm us. But they no longer do. If we're not mindful of this, then reading the account of Haman might leave us feeling a little bit more confident, a little bit more smug, maybe even a little bit invincible. And we might start getting comfortable in our sin as we sit down and have a drink with the king. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. Apart from the presence and work of the Holy Spirit, our hearts are just as susceptible to those sins as Haman's heart was. It just is true, friends. And therefore, like the psalmist, it would be wise for us to regularly ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and test our thoughts to see if there is any wicked or offensive way in me. And if so, lead me back to the way of the Lord. Get me back to the Lord. Let's pray. And then the worship team is going to close our So let's see. No, I think I'll just close in prayer. We're a little bit over time today. I think I'll close us in prayer today. The Heavenly Father, I want to pray that prayer for us right now. I want to pray that you would search our hearts and that you would test our thoughts. And Lord, if there would be any wicked or offensive way in us, anything, doesn't matter how small, God, I pray that you would bring that to our attention. Convince us that the gospel has the power to overcome, that you have better things in store for us. If we'll let go of come. that you have better things in store for us. If we'll let go of come that you have better things in store for us. If we'll let go of calm, that you have better things in store for us. If we'll let go of calm, that you have better things in store for us. If we'll let go of calm, that you have better things in store for us. If we'll let go of calm, that you have better things in store for us. If we'll let go of calm, that you have better things in store for us. If we'll let go of calm, that you have better things in store for us. If we'll let go of calm, that you have better things in store for us. If we'll let go of calm, that you have better things in store for us. If we'll let go of calm, that you have better things